Today's reading of scripture comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 15, verse 1 through 12. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the salt sea from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along to Zin, goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asman, goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the Salt Sea to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary on the north side runs from the Bay of the Sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hogla and passes along north of Beth Ereba. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And the boundary goes up to Deber from the valley of Achor. And so northward turning toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Aduman, which is on the south side of the valley. And the boundary passes along to the waters of En Shemesh and ends at En Rogel. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusit, that is Jerusalem. And the boundary goes up to the top of the mountain that lies over the valley of Hinnom on, on the west, at the northern end of the valley of Rephraim. Then the boundary extends from the top of the mountain to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah, and from there to the cities of Mount Ephron. Then the boundary bends around to Baala, that is, Kiriagirim, and the boundary circles west of Baala to Mount Seir, passes along to the northern shoulder of Mount Jerim, that is, Kesselon, and goes down to Beth Shemesh and passes along by Tinnah. The boundary goes out to the shoulder of the hill north of Ekron, and then the boundary bends around to Shikaron and passes along to Mount Baala and goes out to Jebneel. Then the boundary comes to an end at the sea, and the west boundary was the great sea with its coastline. This is the boundary around the people of Judah according to their clans. This is God's word. Well, if you open your Bibles to Joshua 15, that's obviously where we're at. And if you would uh, remember, 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 and repeat after me, all Scripture is profitable, right? On all Scripture is profitable. I know when you read this, when I read it, it's one of those where you go, what the snarf are we going to do with this? So, we need to remember that if that is written, that all Scripture is profitable, if Paul actually wrote that, then uh, it actually is true, and that a meaningful, meaningful interpretation from such passages doesn't have to come from some crazy hermeneutical yoga in order to twist it around and make it work. Uh, there's something there for us to learn. The famous theologian Matthew Henry uh, said, Where God has a mouth to speak and a hand to write, we should find an ear to hear and an eye to read, and God give us a heart to profit. So, without doubt, these words are intended for our growth, although um, chapter 15 here continues with something fairly or seemingly benign as the distribution of lands, and it will continue uh, with Judah. If you can put that map up, uh, you will see what was described here uh, when Charlie read, of which I'd like to get his entire voice for a Bible on tape. Um, but you see, they, this is what it's going to talk about for several chapters now. We, we talked about the eastern side of the Transjordan tribes that were uh, carved out, and they gave the boundaries for those. So now we're talking about Judah, the largest portion, the largest tribe in Israel, in the south on the west side, and it goes up the coast from there as it begins to distribute. Um, and though... We, again, we need to remember this passage for us might not be really invigorating and really like, you know, I'm going to start my devotions every morning by reading Joshua 15. We have to remember that 2,500 plus years ago, when Israel was hearing this for the first time, they savored every single word. They were describing every detail 
of the gift that they were given. And so every mountain range, river, they were just like, yes, yes, wanting to know what was theirs, what God had, had blessed them with. So for the purposes of going through a 63-verse chapter, which would be difficult, not impossible, difficult for us, I'm going to focus more on the first really half of uh, the book, I'm sorry, the, the chapter, and less on the second half. The first half of the chapter begins with a focus on the actual description of the geographic boundaries of just, you know, mountain ranges and things of that nature and the sea. And then the second, really more than half, almost probably two-thirds, uh, ends with identifying all the cities specifically in that land. So it's really a repetition, but it's a more detailed uh, explanation that would make sense. A lot of those cities don't exist today, or they're of different names today. But you can imagine, of course, or hopefully what it meant for Judah to hear about the details of their portion, and it was an amazing experience for them, even as it got down to specific cities. In the middle of this description, so right between the cities and then the land, is this little anecdote about Caleb again. Last week we talked about Caleb, just studly, faithful soldier Caleb. Well, he was given his portion, and so this is a small little segue that we'll end with that addresses what he did uh, when he was given his portion. But beginning with this chapter and then several chapters, 16, 17, they're really up through about 20, you start to hear a repetition of a concept or an idea, uh, which is the word uh, boundary. In the first 12 verses, you see the word boundary 19 times. So it's obviously specifying the, the boundaries, delineating where their land is, and you can see basically what it generally looked like. Um, but if Paul, if what Paul wrote in Romans is true by the Holy Spirit, we have to say that even these boundaries are supposed to challenge, increase, build our faith in some way, and apply to our own inheritances in some way. Now, our culture uses the term boundaries kind of differently than I'm going to use it, so I want to delineate a little bit between those two. Uh, you hear a lot about boundaries. You've probably heard about boundaries in your life, or you know people that don't have good boundaries, or maybe you don't have good boundaries. It's really a relational term, and it describes you know, the, the process or the pursuit of maintaining healthy relationships with people. And so you do that in addition to creating boundaries to protect yourself from unhealthy relationships. Now, there are hundreds of books. I mean, there's books just even titled Boundaries and, and websites and blogs and all kinds of stuff about making or setting up boundaries for the different relationships we have. And um, I don't want to throw all of that under the bus, just like a lot of it. But it's, it's not bad stuff. It's good stuff. But that's not the kind of boundaries I'm, I'm talking about. Um, but I do have a concern for those kind of boundaries, and that is the aim of those kinds of boundaries are basically to um, pursue happiness with people and avoid unhappiness uh, with people for the most part. And un unfortunately, what happens sometimes, and not often, is that, I shouldn't say not often, maybe it is often, the pursuit of protective boundaries can actually hinder you from discovering what the real problem is. And what I mean is, um, you're the common denominator in all those relationships. And so, oftentimes, when we're trying to, like, you know, create boundaries to protect ourselves, or whatever, we ignore the fact that maybe we need to begin at the heart of the problem, which is our own relationship with God. And that maybe some of those boundaries that we think we need are actually... Um, best fought if we seek confession and repentance first about our own sin, as opposed to like trying to avoid the sin as we see it of other people. But there's nothing wrong with boundaries until they're wrong, if you catch what I mean. And they can be perverted quite easily. But these aren't the kind of boundaries I want to talk about, um, though I think it's tempting and maybe even foolish to make this passage about that. Uh, at the same time, these these geographic boundaries should help us to understand this. That God has given us certain responsibilities and restricted us from others. That he has carved out, if you will, in our lives, borders. That we are not 
for the most part, supposed to cross. Now, I'll explain what that means. So the first 12 verses, as Charlie read, uh, are surrounding Judah, and it ends with a very definitive in verse 12. This is the boundary around the people of Judah according to their clans. And, and once again, we are reminded, as God does, that the portions that we are given, the lots that are given, the exact shape, size, and form of them are determined by God. In other words, we're, when we talk about boundaries, we're not talking about boundaries that we build or that we move. We're talking about the boundaries that God has given us, period. We're talking about the different boundaries that God has laid out so that there is no mystery about what we're responsible for and what we are not responsible for. Now, all that we have, whatever the inheritance we have, is a gift. It is a gift from God. And I don't know if we actually view it always as a gift. But it's a gift from God. And it is a gift that is supposed to be stewarded, not just tolerated. Okay? It's a gift that we are responsible to do something with, not just live in um, passively. And so you've been given by God certain things. You've been placed in a certain time in history. You've been given a certain location to live in. You have been given a particular personality that's different than others. You've been given a personal family history, a unique one, a set of experiences. Maybe you've been blessed with a marriage relationship. You've been given a job. You've been given different relationships and friendships that have come into your life. You have been given a neighborhood. Okay, You've been given a church community. You've been given a lot of different things, and within all of these things that they create boundaries, and within all these boundaries, you have certain responsibilities. And outside of them, you don't necessarily. Now, if you don't know where your boundaries are and what has been carved out for you, you will end up getting hurt or potentially hurting someone else, and sometimes with very good intentions. But if you decide to live outside what God has given you, that can't but anything lead to perversion of God's design, which is sinful, which will ultimately lead to death. It just That's what happens. Okay. Now, let's stick with Judah, not get too way out there first. Stick with Judah. Okay. What historically was Judah given? They were given a big chunk of land outlined by God in detail, and within these boundaries, you ask yourself, what did Judah have to do? When I say Judah, I mean the whole tribe. Judah himself is long dead. Okay? So the whole tribe of Judah, what did they have to do? Well, God said, this is your land. Here are the walls. Inside this area, you are supposed to build, provide, and to protect everything. This is your area. You're in charge of it. You are an under-shepherd of me, my manager of this area. It even applied to worship. You see later, we'll, we'll talk about it in a future sermon, where you have the Levitical, the Levites were not given an actual you know, allotment. They were given cities in all of the tribes. So the Levites in Judah were primarily concerned with protecting the worship of Judah. What's going on in this area? Okay, so you have all these things that Judah is responsible for. And if any of the land, any part of the land is ever threatened, is ever in need, is ever hurting, they didn't appeal to Manasseh to come and help them. Judah, the men and women of Judah were responsible, the mandated responsibility to lead and to fight within their borders. They acted very much like a king, though there wasn't a king yet. They acted like a king, and what does a king do? Well, a king ensures the health of the land by surveying the health of the land. It makes sure he understands where its strengths are, where its weaknesses are, where it's vulnerable, where things need to be built. Where they act like a king as they cultivate and build the land. Okay. Now, beginning with verse 21, we see... It's not just even land. In 21, it started listing specific cities. And I think it's pretty safe to assume because 
the, the tribe, if you will, was made up of little clans, and the clans were made up of families. And so you can see it getting much more specific. So it's safe to assume the clans were probably given cities, and they had to be responsible for cities, and there's parts of the cities that even fewer guys are responsible for. And so they're, they're organizing, if you will, to make sure that everything is protected, cultivated, built, and grown. Now, as the boundaries get more precise, you see that God doesn't command certain things. What I mean is, I like to think of it this way, like, well, God commanded this, but what didn't he say? Well, God didn't tell these guys to concern themselves primarily with anyone else's land. Doesn't mean they never would, but he didn't say, okay, Judah, make sure even Simeon, who has an allotment within their land, make sure they're okay. Okay, it doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, hey, you, uh, you need to work on increasing the size of your land. Now, there were still parts that needed to be conquered, and we see that through Caleb and that kind of things. but when the borders were finally made, he didn't say, well, make sure you make it bigger someday. The hope is to go all the way around the Mediterranean. That wasn't necessarily the case. He also did not say, just build, cultivate, and protect the lands, the parts of your land that are easiest, right? Stay away from the hard parts. Don't worry about those. It was the whole land, every part of it, even the stuff they maybe looked at and went, that's going to take a lot of work, okay? So he marked out the territory for them to live in only and fully. When I say only, I guess it's probably better to say primarily, the reason I say that is because history demonstrates that they do have large all-Israel moments where they come together and unify. But there are, most of the time, they're to be primarily concerned with their borders and not crossing over into others. Now, I say that because we have to understand that with the responsibilities we've given, let me give you an example for the church. There's a lot of times that we say no to things. As, as elders and, and leaders, and we say, no, we're not going to do that. And I found out that any time you say no to someone, they automatically translate that to, you don't care about whatever it is they wanted to do. Okay? So, for example, and no one's done this, so this won't pick on anybody, but someone, say they came and said, we want to start a food bank. Because, you know, I have all these reasons why a food bank would be great for this community and blah, blah, blah. Great. And we say, no, we're not going to do that. And automatically the thought is, you don't want to feed the homeless. You must hate them. You know, it's like, no, we don't hate the homeless, and we do think they're hungry, but we have to concern ourselves with the energy, time, and resources have primarily with this mission we've been called to. That doesn't make that unimportant. It just makes it secondary as long as we have these figured out. Then we can do these if God has given us the time, energy, and, and horses to lead that, if you will. So it's not a matter of only, it's a matter of what is most important for you. And so when I talk about borders today, I'm not saying like, never concern yourself with anyone else's stuff. That's not it. But it's say, what is primary? What is most important? What has God given me? What must I do? And then what can I do as long as this is taken care of? If that makes sense. I hope it does. Now, the question is, with all these boundary stuff, what it, Okay, what, how does that apply to us? I see what it means for Judah. Well, as I said, in a similar way, God has given us a very unique portion. You have gotten a unique portion of some kind. And they have specific boundaries around those portions, I believe. And he has marked out for you, whether you know it or not, where you are supposed to responsibly live in and live fully. Now, Genesis 2.15, way back in the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve were put, in, put into a garden. And prior to 2.15, there were very specific borders created for that garden with rivers and all these things that said, this is where the garden is located. And this is the extent or size of the garden. And in 2.15, he said, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so it's within those boundaries that Adam, as God's design was before the fall, that he was given to work, to protect, to maintain, and to grow. Doesn't mean that anything outside the garden was evil and terrible, but he had a job. He had responsibilities in there. 
So the question for all of us is simply this, and it's not even really that difficult, but I am guessing not very common that you've asked it. Have you ever stepped back and surveyed your boundaries? The borders that have been given for you, the area that you are actually responsible for. Do you know what your God-given borders are? And you go, well, no, that's a weird question, Sam. No, I haven't asked that. And even if I did want to ask that, this is the kind of conversation I have with you when you're not around. And even if I did want to ask that, what would I say? Where would I start? Great question. Where did Judah start? God's word. That's not crazy and freaky interpretation. That's just like, oh, we have borders written down for us to reference later when things get confusing as to what we're responsible for. Makes sense. You, as a son of God, a daughter of God, a man, a woman, a if you are blessed to be a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, have been given certain parameters that you are called to be responsible for. Do you know what they are? Do you know the borders that have been given for you that you are supposed to live in responsibly? Have you ever read what the Bible says? Even as an employee, do you know the Bible addresses how we're to work for our employees? Employers, right? Do you know your God-given borders? Judah didn't start with what they liked. They started with what God told them they were supposed to be living in. And then after you know your borders, have you ever asked yourself what you've been given to build within those borders? Have you ever surveyed what is actually in those borders and needs to be built? What's there that is built? What's there that needs to be built? Just take a very simple um, example like a marriage, okay? Marriage, the Bible says so much about marriage, a ton. And yet I sit down uh, with, with couples all the time, and nine times out of ten, if I sat down with a couple that I haven't honestly gone through premarital counseling with, they don't actually know what they're doing. And what I mean is I just go, well, okay, do you guys understand what your responsibilities are as a biblical husband? Love my wife. That's about it. I mean, seriously, it's something like that. As a biblical wife, as a biblical marriage, they don't have, they just don't know. So they don't even know where to start building. And if they looked at their marriage, for example, like, dude, you guys, communication is really bad. You actually need to build that. You have to learn how to communicate. That's something that has to be built as you survey. Where within your borders are there threats to your safety? Spiritually, emotionally, or otherwise? Where are the things you have to protect? As you survey the land, what are the vulnerable parts of your family, of your marriage? Do you know what's vulnerable? Do you know where the weak spots are? Do you know what portions that have been assigned to you that you need to send troops to, that you need to put more energy and time into? You ever thought about that? What has been placed in your care, or dare I say, who has been placed in your care? And I know we immediately go, well, I've got you know, my family. There's much more than that, but that's there. You've been placed also in a community. You've been placed in a neighborhood. I'm not saying those people are in your care. I'm just saying if you ever ask the question, that God has put you in these borders that you have some responsibilities to cultivate people. And then where within your borders is the battle raging right now? Where are the emergencies, if you will? As a king, you sit back and you go, man, this border's falling. i got to really put all my time there. And do you have a strategy for that? Have you ever even had a battle plan created to think about that? Now, I ask that I've asked myself all these questions, and I'm like, no, fail, fail. I mean, I, don't think I'm up here like, I've got those figured out, and you can read my blog if you want more information. It's not like that, okay? But I, we do have to ask ourselves these questions and go, okay, what are we doing? Because we so easily get distracted. And I will say this as a little bit of a side note. There's a danger 
in talking about boundaries in this way for this reason because we, be, we tend to become too other-oriented. And I, I say that, it's, it's, it's a weird tension, but I say when I mean other-oriented, it's like, you go, okay, what are my boundaries? What am I responsible for? And we're worried about all these other things that are even within our boundaries. And the problem is we kind of start maybe adopting a little bit of a savior complex, and we start to ignore our own need for the Savior. And so, knowing your boundaries without doubt is important, but securing the boundaries or having any hope of doing that begins with knowing the smallest portion you have is right here. It's your heart. And if your relationship with God is not healthy, if you don't understand what your boundaries are and are pursuing health, I mean, we ever healthy? No, probably not. But if you're not really focused on that, you don't have a chance at protecting the land that God has given you. You need to deal, and God wants to deal, with your own idolatry before you concern yourself with anyone else's. It's the bottom line. However, let's talk about other people. Because, quite frankly, what's outside of our borders, for the most part, we really get excited about. And what I mean is that it seems that the most common and one of the best ways to avoid talking about our own issues is to worry about everyone else's. And if you look at the boundaries for for Judah as they're outlined, they're not only outlined to give Judah insight and not even insight, very definitive clarity on where his responsibility is, but also where it stops, okay, where it isn't. God's borders for us are not only given so that we know where and what and even who we're responsible for, they're also given so that we know who, what, and where we're not responsible for. Now, some of us, including myself, I'm guilty of this, and it's, just, it's like, it's not that we do these things all the time, but we do them some of the time is that we've convinced ourselves we're Jesus, honestly. And this is one of my biggest issues when we started the church because I really wanted to like save everybody. It was very draining because I couldn't fix everybody. And so let me just give you a little bit of insight. Um, there is already one redeemer. His name is Jesus. The job's taken, and uh, you can't redeem squat. You really can't. And... But the thing, it doesn't stop us from trying to step into other people's battles that really are not our concern. And I know I say that, and people go, well, we should help each other. We'll get there. But when we talk about helping people, okay, think about, like, you know what, adopting this, like, savior complex. Our helping people begins to amount to... um, you know, making sure we see their sin and rebuking them at every opportunity. Or, you know, teaching people what they should be doing with their lives, um, even though they're not really asking. Or uh, protecting people by policing them, like some kind of, you know, commandant in a helicopter flying around to make sure they're like, whoa, don't go over there, you know. That's what we're talking about. And I don't know... Uh, if that's healthy or if that's even could possibly be sinful. Now, here's the questions we also have to ask in addition to the other ones is, do you not only know where your borders are, but what is outside of your God-given borders? Um, And have you tested this by Scripture and prayer? Because without doubt, there may be something outside of your borders that God is actually commanding you and calling you and giving you opportunity to, to, to do and meet. But that needs to be tested before I think you jump into it. Because we start asking ourselves questions like, how much time and energy are you dedicating to building something that God actually never told you to build? I mean, that's, that's a hard question to ask because some of the things that are being built are really good. But what happens sometimes is that your building project takes so much out of you that it distracts you from what you actually have been commanded to build, and as you're doing some amazing things for God sometimes, your home's dilapidated, spiritually speaking. 
I mean, I, you know how many conversations I have with my kids because I'm freaked out about having a pastor's kid. Okay? I've met more people, I'm sure there's some here, who parents, dad, was a pastor. Right? Remember the movie Footloose? Right? The daughter wearing, kicking up the red boots, you know, miss, like a little devil child, right? And I have this fear that that's going to happen because I went to private Christian college and I met them all. Okay? And they were just like, cuckoo. So... My son, I sit down often, and I'm like, so what do you think about the church? You know, what, what do you think about me being a pastor? Like, looking for, like, I hate it, you know, or whatever. Like, the signs of <laughs> destruction uh, starting. And I don't see it yet, praise God. But I have a fear, because there's many, many men, purely motivated, I will say, and eventually not purely motivated, purely motivated, who have put their families on the altar in a very sinful way, and in the name of Jesus, in the name of the church, and all these things, build incredible ministries as they kill off their family. And it's just sinful and wrong. And that's when we install elders and say, look, primary responsibility is their family. And when that begins to suffer, they will, we will encourage them and push them to stop and focus on their family. But ask yourself how much stuff you're building that God never told you to build. That's a hard question, but a good one. What is not your responsibility? What is not your responsibility to protect? How many emergencies come into your life, and you're like, oh, i got to help, and it's not actually your emergency? It's one of my favorite things to say. Your emergency is not necessarily mine. Okay? Sounds cold, but how many things are threatened that, is, that are really not your job to save? It doesn't mean you hope that they aren't saved. But there is a consequence and a cost to stepping into that. Who are you right now maybe trying to save that has not actually been placed in your care? And I say that not suggesting that you shouldn't care about people who, who have needs. That's not where I'm going. But I'm saying, what is primary? And do you have what's primary taken care of? Who have you convinced yourself that just desperately needs your help that really maybe doesn't. What needs do you have the opportunity but not the responsibility to meet? And why do you assume, though, that you're expected to meet those? Could they possibly take you away from you meeting the needs where you clearly are responsible to meet? It's what are the battles that you're not called to fight? I know, I told, pick your battles, pick your battles. Well, might be some truth to that. Now, again, this is going to be tough. Ready? I have to prepare myself. This is not about being self-centered or unloving. Okay? I believe fully in Jesus, how he summarized the law, said love God and love people. I, I fully believe in that. I think we need to live lives of sacrifice. Uh, Jesus died and lived for people who hated him. That's us. Okay? So, I, it's not what this is about, but I will say that a lot of people will struggle with this because they really feel just a call to help and do all these things. And um, as I said, you're not Jesus, but it feels really good to be that person. But I will say this, even if you wanted to live like Jesus, I'm, I just, I'm just being like Jesus. I'm just loving as he did. I'm serving as he did. I'm sacrificing as he did. Okay. But let's be honest about what Jesus did and didn't do. Jesus did not heal every single person he could have. He didn't even talk to every single person he could have. That's huge. That was a huge revelation for me. Because just because the opportunity's there doesn't mean that you are the one who's supposed to actually meet it. It very well may be. But let's pause Read scripture, pray, seek counsel before we jump into something we know is going to be costly to us. But don't throw down the Jesus trump card and think, well, Jesus, whoa, hold, the, put the brakes on for a second. Because Jesus was very discerning, and Jesus knew exactly where his borders were, exactly what his mission was, exactly what his purpose was. And he said, I am here to serve God, to glorify God. The Greeks asked him to do stuff. The Jews asked him to do stuff. Everyone asked him to do stuff, and he said, nope, 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 yes. Because he knew exactly what God had called him to do. 
But many of ourselves, I think, have convinced, are convinced that if we don't help that person or do that thing, it won't get done. And I would just say, you, that could be prideful. That could really be prideful if you think that it's dependent upon you to fix or build or whatever. And I say that it could be prideful if it's very clear, at least in Scripture, that he hasn't laid out that that actually is your responsibility. And even though I think we can often justify our border extensions with talk of sacrifice to others, you should know that it's borderline prideful to convince yourself that not only do you have everything together, but that that person is dependent upon you, that you actually possess the power that Jesus does to save X, Y, Z. So do you know where your boundaries are? Because if you don't know where your boundaries are, if you don't know what God, God-given boundaries for you, what happens is you will make your own. You will make your own. A lot of us have made our own. Man-made boundaries. So man-made, like, I'm going to tell you the portion that I have, God. Man-made boundaries are not only foolish, but they're governed by sin. And I know when I say sin, you think of the worst perversion possible. I'm not saying that. Anything that is not aligned with God's design is sin. So we can say it's perverted from God's design, not the most perverted thing possible. Now, again, I'm not talking about borders with, with healthy relationships. Not that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about deciding to deny God's description of our responsibilities and dictating our own based on emotion, intellect, or experience. Say, no, this is what I'm actually responsible for, and it actually contradicts Scripture. And typically, our, our newly drawn lines that we like are adjusted in such a way to kind of move our portion away from what we're responsible for and including some things that we're not. Now, I believe we do this most often because it's a lot easier to worry about what we don't have or focus on that and other people's sin than it is ours and even help with other people's weaknesses and to avoid our own. Now, the problem is that man-made boundaries are always in the wrong place because they're always built according to um, our own selfish hearts. Now, let me give you what I mean. Sometimes, when we lay out what our responsibilities are as uh, men, women, husbands, wives, employees, whatever it happens to be, as you look at everything that is life, Sometimes our boundaries start in the wrong place because we actually just actually never listen to God give the description of the boundaries to begin with. We just don't know. Now, some of that, quite frankly, because we're naive. And what naive is that you just didn't know. Some of you might be new believers. You, you come to the faith, and you didn't even know that you had responsibilities as a Christian. You didn't know that uh, a, a biblical husband, you just didn't know. For a time, that's forgiven. At some point it becomes ignorant. And ignorant is you should have known. Right? You should know. Now we're into this laziness where you're actually not even pursuing it. You have a responsibility. You have the means to understand it and you're just not. So sometimes they're built because we simply just don't know and we don't know for a couple different reasons. Sometimes we move the boundaries Let me go back for a second. We talk about building boundaries. Let me just talk about husbandry because most women are gone, so it's easier to beat up on you guys. Some of your understanding of being a husband, boundaries are built based off of what you saw in your father. Those are the boundaries you've been given, and you've never tested those boundaries. You've never taken those boundaries and looked and compared that with Scripture to see is that actually what a husband's supposed to be? Take anything. Friendship. You know, finances, whatever it is. So a lot of those things, we just come to the table and they're, they're given to us by what we see and what we grow up with. Just ask him, make, make sure your boundaries are actually aligned with where God says they actually are. 
Then we end up sometimes, as I said, moving our boundaries. Um, the bottom line is we actually listen to where they're at and we don't like them. So we change them. And when uh, sometimes we extend them out of pride because we want the approval of, of people. Other times, though, and I think more often, we change our boundaries based off uh, particularly negative experiences. Now, we build up boundaries, basically, to protect ourselves from that negative experience ever happening again. I'll give you an example. Uh, I used to ask kids in, uh, in the high school, like, whoever thought, you know, who expects to be married someday, and every year it became less and less hands. And it was not expectation as much as desire. And I would say, why don't you want to be married? And they say, oh, the marriages I see, just, I don't want that. And suddenly marriage, which I believe is God's design for most people, becomes something that is uh, abhorred. And your borders change like, well, my life doesn't include marriage because I either had a bad one or saw bad ones. Sometimes think about, I'm sure no one here ever had a negative church experience. And what happens, though, is that your understanding of what God expects from you, hopes for you, wants for you, for a full and abundant life, includes the church. And then you have a bad church experience. You go, we'll pull those borders in. Church isn't actually part of my life. I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And you begin to move your borders based off of, I simply don't want to be hurt again, so I'm not going to expose myself when you've moved your border away from what God said it was. Judah can't go, mm, it's really difficult in that part. We'd rather have our borders about you know, 50 miles in. That doesn't work. You can't just move your borders if it's a God-given border. And then lastly, I think more often we, not just dislike, so we move them, we adopt other people's borders. We just want what they have, and we focus on their land. And we dismiss not only our own God-given gift of an inheritance with stuff and responsibilities, we focus on other people's stuff and take responsibility for them. And the hard part is that, and the thing about this is like, it's hard not to like this person honestly, because they just look like they're really loving. And they just want to serve people. They just want to, like, give people. And, but the funny thing is, as they're, like, you know, helpy helperton, just, like, helping everyone there is, you look at their own life, you're like, but, I mean, a lot of people are being blessed by you, but your own home over here is really messed up. But it's like, uh, but, gosh, if I tell that person that, you know, they're going to be hurt, and I don't want them to, I don't want to take away and say what they're doing is invaluable to say, but what is primary? Now, this temptation to move our borders, to, to adopt other borders, honestly is just a result of uh, discontentment. You're dissatisfied with what God has given you. And you want to increase your borders so that you can have more. You just, oh, that's just too hard to deal with that. So you don't want to deal with what is supposed to be your responsibility. And some will redescribe this to make it sound better, like, well, um, I just really am a, uh, I'm a servant. I'm just a servant. Like, yeah, except your own family. But you're, you're a servant. Now, I think it's just a cover-up for our idolatry, but I do believe there's a, there's a time and a place to ask for increasing your borders. This is going to be kind of strange. The middle of this passage, if you look in Joshua 15, there's a little anecdote that seems like totally disconnected about Caleb. And Caleb gives us a great example of a couple things. One, what to do with the inheritance that you've been given and how to deal with that. And so we'll read that. He says, verse 14, remember he just got... Um, a portion of Hebron, the city of Hebron, and the hills surrounding that. And he was given it in the previous chapter, and now we see exactly what he did, and immediately doesn't wait. Verse 14 of chapter 15 says, And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shisha, and Ahiman, and Talamai, descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debur. Now the name of the Debur formerly was Kiriath Sefer. Now, 
Let's just talk real quick about Caleb. We see that after having been given his portion, 85-year-old Caleb wastes no time in securing the land. These are my borders? All right, boom! Let's make sure that they're protected and guarded and governed. And he isn't lazy. He doesn't make excuses. God said, this is the portion you get, and immediately he's on it. Now, again, he sets the, he sets the standard of how to deal with what you've been given within your borders. And then there's a city. And it's either Deber or Deber. We'll call it Deber. But Deber was first taken already by Joshua in one of the southern campaigns. And so now it's been retaken by the Canaanites. And there's still people in there. So basically Caleb needs to go take this city. And so he asks in verse 16, he says, Caleb said, whoever strikes... Kiriath Sefer and captures it. To him I will give Aksah, my daughter, as a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. He gave him Aksah, his daughter's wife. So his nephew, Othniel, who you later see in the book of Judges as the first judge, he's a stud, okay? He steps up when Caleb says, I will give my daughter to whoever takes this city back. Now, his daughter, if you read back in the Babylonian Talbot, which is not important what it is, but it's an old book, okay? And in this book, they describe, the Jews describe what she was like. And they actually say that her name had this connotation of it makes women ugly. They're like, what? It's like, because all the men would look at her and think their wives were ugly. Like, she must have been cute, right? So he takes his prized possession, which is his daughter, a beautiful possession, and says, whoever takes this city, you get her. And I imagine they're lining up, and Othniel, who we later see is pretty studly in terms of just his abilities, comes and takes the city and thus gets the uh, daughter as his bride. And along with the bride, he gets a dowry. He gets an inheritance, or she gets an inheritance, a section of land. Okay? Now, there's a lot of things you can learn from that passage. Um, one thing is make sure that your daughter marries a stud like you, because that's pretty much what Othniel is. So there's one thing to remember. The second thing is as they're given an inheritance in the marriage relationship, when you have to deal with your parentals, right? The husband should deal with his, and the wife should deal with hers. It just makes all things work well. This is what happens here. Caleb's um, daughter goes to um, Othniel and basically says, go ask dad for more land. Othniel isn't the one that goes and asks dad for more land. Okay, So we don't know exactly what happened. If Othniel was like, you go ask your dad. I don't know what. But she's the one that goes and asks her father for land. And the truth is, what we see in here is something that will apply to you if you are dissatisfied with your inheritance. Because that's what it sounds like is going on here. She's given an inheritance and she's like, I want some more. Now, it's a different kind of dissatisfaction, but we'll see what happens Truth is, Caleb, um, her daughter is not, his daughter is not satisfied. And she goes to verse 18 and says, When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. That's Othniel. We don't hear what happens in that exchange. Then she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, so she goes to her dad, and he goes, What do you want? Verse 19, she said to him, Give me a blessing. Which he could say, I just threw you a wedding and gave you a dowry. Come on. But she wants more. Like, bless me more. The dowry is legally required. Give me a blessing. Extra. Since you have given me the land of Negeb, give me also the springs of water. And he gave to her the upper springs and the lower springs. Well, what about the land of Negeb? It is a desert. It is a dry, barren, not going to grow any corn desert. And so, the land she has is dry and undesirable undesirable now she comes though and she reverently 
asks her father to extend her borders. But she doesn't ask that her borders will be increased, that she just can simply have more. She asks that her borders will be increased so that what she has been given will be more satisfying. What he gives her and what she asks for is water to cultivate the land that is dry that she's already been given. In other words, she doesn't just ask for different borders, which is very tempting for us to do because we just don't like what we got. She asks to increase her borders so that she can have life within the borders that she lives. So I'll just close with this challenge. If you survey the land that you have, the portion that you've been given, and the borders that God has given you, and you look at that, and you are dissatisfied, you are discontent with whatever that is, let me encourage you not to fight for different borders and not to run to move your borders or to adopt someone else's. I simply say, ask the Father for renewed life in what you have. That is what he's given you to live in fully. That is the gift And I know for a lot of us, what we have doesn't feel or look like a gift. But God intends for you to live in it fully and to have life in it abundantly. And you, though you think life abundantly exists outside of the parameters that have been given to you, that's not true. But the key is to have life there. And I'm reminded as Jesus was sitting at the well with a woman. We see that the life doesn't come from moving our borders. It comes from him. In John chapter 4, it says this. As she's drawing water out of a well, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up with eternal life. Your discontent as you survey the land has nothing to do with anything outside of your borders. It has everything to do with your belief in the gospel of Jesus. And you need to be reminded that God intends for you to have life in what you've been given. And if you are dissatisfied, that's not a matter of finding something better. It's actually a matter of confession, which we do every Sunday. You confess that you are honestly not grateful for what God has given you. You confess and be honest about your feelings, and then you pray for renewal. You pray that God will give you hope and joy and contentment, which is what we all want, in what he has laid out for us.